Praise the Lord, indeed, amen. Well, why don't we take our Bibles and open up together to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2. So we're moving right along in this great epic of a book that Isaiah is. And today we are going to be reading verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5. This is what the Word of God says. The word which Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. Thank You that we can come together and walk in the light of the Lord, as it were, together and hear Your good instruction and learn about Your paths and Your law and Your Word and Your ways, the ways that have come to us through the gospel of Your Son, who is the King of Zion. Lord, we pray today that you would help us to see the relevance of eschatology, even the eschatology that Isaiah saw, for what he saw has everything to do with us, everything to do with your Son and his glorious kingdom that is coming. And so, Father, I pray today that you would fill us with hearts that are expectant, fill us with hope, fill us with faith, and help us to set our sight on the prize, the goal, the upward call in Christ Jesus, because such is the instruction of your word today, Lord. We pray that you would use this, use this prophetic oracle of Isaiah today as a means of grace, just to reorient us again, to get us focused again, to not lose sight of our reward, to not lose sight of finishing the race that is set before us as we look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you saw there in the text that Isaiah sort of introduces the prophecy again. And if you're paying attention, it kind of sounds like the book is starting all over again because that's the way that Isaiah opened up the book, you remember? He said in chapter 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw. Well, that's almost exactly what he says here. The word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, that the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. A really interesting uh, way to speak of uh, the prophecy here that's going on. And notice the word play there, right? The word that he saw. (laughs) So it's like there's a seeing of a word, which doesn't really typically go together in 
in our minds. When we think of a word, we think of a word we heard, not that we saw. But the seeing is a prophetic seeing. It's a, it's a prophetic supernatural vision that has been given to Isaiah. And we talked about this in our introduction, that really there is a, there's a multitude of visions that are going on in the book of Isaiah. But when Isaiah finishes his prophetic career, he insists that what he saw throughout 50 years of prophesying is one vision, one ultimate message, prophetic message for the people of God. And this prophetic message, I tell you, it is monumental, to say the least. It is, uh, it is profound, to say the least. And, and, and what goes on in these visions oftentimes, and I'm so grateful for uh, this little section here, verses 1 to 4, mainly because uh, here it's almost like Isaiah, Isaiah sees the entire plan of God. Uh, and he speaks of it right here. That's what the prophets can do. You know, it's a shame the prophets give us such profound insights into the work of God, into redemptive history, into prophecy, uh, into the whole uh, scheme of God's redemption and His kingdom that we don't read it enough. Uh, I just somebody forwarded me a uh, a, uh, a a poll, an infographic that uh, the folks over at uh, ESV Crossway they took a they took a poll and they concluded that. The prophets, and Isaiah was right in there, the prophets are the least read sections of the Bible among Christians. And so when Christians pick up their Bible, the last place they want to go is a a book like Isaiah. Isn't that a shame? Just what a reminder. So we're doing our part. We're laying our... We're laying our stone in the work here to rebuild the temple of prophetic reading. So uh, I'm glad we're here, but it just reminds us that it's so beneficial when we study these prophets because of what they're giving us. It's so deep and it's so profound. And here, really, brothers and sisters, what we're getting is eschatology. Isaiah is giving us an eschatological preview of what is to come. The only thing is, is that it's couched in the language of the mountain of the Lord, or the way that he calls it here, the mountain of the house of the Lord. And so I want to talk about the mountain of God, because through the mountain of God, Isaiah is going to teach us about the kingdom of God, the people of God, the heaven of God, the the, the reign of God, the sovereignty of God. And so the very first point that I want to talk about here in light of uh, Isaiah's eschatology is the victory of, of God's mountain, which we could call Harmageddon, because the word Harmageddon in Scripture actually comes to mean the mountain of God. And I'll, I'll show you that in a minute. But suffice to say that in Isaiah's eschatology, uh, we, you know, in verses 1 through 4, we are talking about the end of the age. So it's almost like Isaiah catapults us way into the future. I mean, think about the eschatological horizon that is set in front of us here with his vision. And this will be a time of God's final victory over all kingdoms, and that will come to fruition when all the nations will either bow to the kingdom of God or they will burn. And that is certainly true in Isaiah's message. They will either repent to their joy or they will rebel to their misery. 
I mean, that's the judgment that is repeated over and over in the book of Isaiah. And all the peoples, therefore, who turn to the Lord, as it says here, they will stream into Zion, the city of the living God, where justice will reign. And the result will be that there will be this perfect universal peace without end, verse 4. And the result, as we will see, is an actual imperative. It's an exhortation to walk in a certain way with the Lord in the present. But we come to this theme of the mountain. Now it will come about in the last days. Now notice that phraseology. It's almost like we expect that in the New Testament, not really in the Old Testament, but it's in the Old Testament. The phrase, the Hebrew, in the last days, goes all the way back to Genesis. Uh, way back then, uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, I can just think of a couple passages, like Genesis 49, uh, chapter 49, where uh, the, the, the uh, tribes are being prophesied over, and there Jacob speaks about the last days. And so all the way back, the first book of the Bible, it's already talking about what will occur in the last days. And so uh, here Isaiah picks up that language of the eschaton to speak to us about a really important theme. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. And so what we're looking at here is the victory of Har Mageddon. This is wonderful, and if you want to know more about this, I really encourage you to come to the Klein group because we are going to be getting into a lot of this theology. And I'll quote Klein here in a moment. But really, when it comes to the mountain of God, again, we're talking about his sovereignty. So when we're thinking about Harmageddon, the theology of the mountain of God, uh, if you think of the mountain of God in one way, uh, you, you, you will be really deficient in what it means because what happens is that Zion, the mountain of God, has come to mean a multitude of things. Multitude of things. So if you just interpret Zion as heaven, you won't be wrong, but you won't be fully right. If you come to interpret Zion as, well, the people of God, well, you will be right, but you won't be fully right. You, will be, you won't be wrong, but you won't be fully right because it's a prism of meaning. It is a, it is a whole, uh, a, a, a whole uh, network of things that are going on here. And I just listed them. Uh, Zion, the mountain of the house of God, it speaks of God's sovereignty, His reign, His heaven, His people, His judgment, His glory, His palace, His temple, His kingdom, and His victory. You see how extensive it is? That's how broad this whole language is. And in recent scholarship, perhaps nobody has done more penetrating work on the whole theme of the mountain of God than Meredith G. Klein. And in fact, in his book that we're studying, God, Heaven, and Harmageddon, which is called A Covenantal Tale of Cosmos and Telos, because that's exactly what it is. Cosmos meaning the whole world, the whole universe, extending all the way to heaven, and then telos, the goal, the end, the purpose of it all. It's a fascinating uh, book, and I want to write to you about what Klein does here, because in his labors, what Klein is giving us is what we could call a biblical theological eschatology, a biblical uh, theological eschatology. Now, you know, in our church, is uh, biblical theology is a big deal in our church because I really believe that the Bible was written in such a way that we're supposed to think along the lines of biblical theology. What's biblical theology? Well, biblical theology is not saying you're 
your, your theology is biblical, <laughs> like it's sound. That's not what biblical theology is. Biblical theology is a discipline. It is a category. It's a department of theology, kind of like systematic theology or uh, uh, historical theology or practical pastoral theology. Biblical theology, again, traces the entire story of the Bible in a grand meta-narrative and tries to discover how that grand story all goes together and try to point out some of the unifying themes, ideas, and teachings and doctrines along that story. Really, the ultimate unity or the ultimate uh, focus of that story is we could sum it up as Jesus Christ and His kingdom. That is really what the whole story is about But when it comes to this central theme, listen to what Meredith Klein says about this. I think you guys can grasp this if you pay attention. Somebody walked in the sanctuary, already told me they only slept a couple hours and they're sleeping. I thought, oh boy, I'm going to put you to sleep. (laughs) But if if you tune in, I think we can learn from Meredith Klein, who is often uh, said to be uh, sort of hard to read, sometimes vague, sometimes overly uh, prolix, a little bit too wordy or pedantic, just kind of, why does he make it so hard to understand? Uh, But listen to what he says here. Harmageddon, well named as the heavenly mount, the mountain of God. For it is the mountain of gathering in a multiple sense. Primarily and forever it is the temple mount, the assembly place of the worshiping, celebrating entourage of the King of Glory, a myriad of congregation of angels and men. Here is the council chamber where God assembles the heavenly elders for deliberation. This celestial mountain is the paradise to which God's exiled people of every nation are regathered. Armageddon is the palace fortress against which Satan's Antichrist, aspiring to the throne of this mountain, gathers his hordes in a final battle for Armageddon. We're going to look at that, actually. An event which, from the perspective of God's sovereignty, is a divine gathering of all the nations to Zion for their final judgment. This mount of assembly is the heavenly hearth, the home, to which the Lord gathers His elect one by one as they, pass from, as they pass from the earthly scene and as a resplendent multitude raised from the dust in resurrection glory at His final harvesting of the earth, the parousia, which means the coming of Christ. And so Harmageddon takes us all the way to the end, when Christ returns and gathers His people, raises them up in glory. This will happen at the end of time. And so, we can say, the mountain of God means the total and absolute triumph of God. It means that He will reign, as it says. It will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. It's almost as if, brothers and sisters, amidst all the chaos that goes on in the world around us, amidst all the dangers, amidst even the context we're in now, amidst all the wars and the conflicts and and everything that's going on, I mean, think about it. Even to our very, I mean, just the other day I was reading about, well, we're almost at war with Iran. What's that going to mean? Russia's going to get involved. Okay, so I'm thinking, okay, well, just one couple little scenarios, boom, there we are, Armageddon. (laughs) And I think, well, that's not a a problem for me because I'm a Christian. 
According to the Bible, when Harmageddon comes, I know who wins, right? It's not in doubt, right? Are you afraid? What are you afraid about? We know who wins. God wins. And so we shouldn't fear that this upheaval, that this sort of uh, tumultuous, sort of catastrophic end is coming upon the world. And I believe that. Uh, I'm not post-millennial. I do not believe that the world will get better and better and better and better and better. And then it'll get so good, Jesus will return to a pretty much a renewed earth by the time he... No, I'm, I have a, what's known as a pessimistic view of the future. So I'm more in the amillennial, even the historic premillennial camp that sees that things will now actually progressively get worse and worse. And there will be tribulation and there will be antichrist and God will come in and rescue his people. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. By the way, just get my sermons on Thessalonians if you want to know where I'm at. But it has everything to do with this. Because what we're seeing is that for the, 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 the prophet Isaiah, what he saw, what he was forecasting here on a national and ethnic and historical level, as his prophecy is unfolding, what he is talking about will have relevance in the decades and in the centuries to come in his own context, his own generation, and the generations after. But... Within that prophetic vision, he also forecasts way into the future about something far greater than just, you know, individual Israelites coming back into the land and taking over Zion again, Jerusalem. It's much greater than that. But still, as we think about it, Isaiah sees a future in which at the fulfillment level, there will be no more temples destroyed. There will be no more kingdoms that are splintered. There will be no more nations in revolt. There will be no more captives in exile. All God's people will be gathered to Armageddon, and there no one will harm us. Isaiah 11 verse 9 says, no one will hurt us on his holy mountain. That's speaking about our eschatological Safety and reward and security. So here, turn with me in your Bibles. Go to Revelation chapter 16. It's amazing how this Harmageddon language, if you want to know the truth, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Yeah, that's right, Garden of Eden. Ezekiel tells us that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain, the mountain of the Lord. And Eden was kind of like a little earthly replica. Think of it, guys. Like we go to Jerusalem, you go see the old city replica. It's about the size of this room, right? And there the entire old city is mapped out as a miniature in miniature scale as a replica of the actual city that you're standing in. It's really fascinating. And the, you know, the guide's telling you with a laser, that's where we're standing, and that's where this and this where Jesus walked. And so it, but it's just a little replica of the real thing. And what was Eden? Eden was an earthly replica of the heavenly mountain of God, the heavenly paradise of God. And so this theme stretches all the way through the Bible, and it arrives, the mountain of God arises again when we get to the very end, Revelation. That's where you're at, Revelation 16. Let's look at it, verse 13. It says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, For they are spirits of demons, wow, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Now, something you may want to learn is that the when it says here he gathers them for the war, that is an articular use of ha palema 
Hapalamenas. Hapalamenas literally means the war. It's not a war. It's not an war. It's the war. There's a definitive war coming. And I only point that out because that phrase there, the war, is used three times in the book of Revelation. Okay? And this is one of the uses. The other one is in Revelation chapter 20, uh, verse, uh, verse 8. But here, the war he's gathering to, gathering to is what? It is Armageddon. Watch. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which is in Hebrew called Har Mageddon. Now, there's a textual variant there. If you have a different translation than mine, it might say Armageddon. Now, what's interesting, just to make textual criticism very simple here, is you have different manuscripts. And in the manuscripts, you could have the actual Har Mageddon, Armageddon, and some manuscripts actually have R, then two words, Mageddon. Armageddon, instead of Armageddon, one word, it's Armageddon, two words. What are they doing? They're trying to emphasize that first, that first part, R, Har, that means mountain. You see what, the, what they're doing there? The scribes, they're trying to emphasize this word is tethered to a concept wherein the mountain of God is emphasized. And so how do we draw that out? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So I think the NASB actually has the right textual choice. It's Harmageddon with an H, meaning the mountain of God, or the, literally the mountain of assembly. That's what it's called. In the ancient times, the Mount of Assembly is the place where God would do battle with the gods. Do you remember what happened at Carmel? Mount Carmel is where Elijah slaughtered the prophets of Baal. That's when God came down on a mountain and did war with false prophets and their kingdoms, and he slaughtered them as a sign, typical, a type of the future victory of God. It is profound. It is, it is all extensive. It's, it's amazing what goes on here. We can stay on this mountain theme forever, but... Alas, we cannot. We have to move on. And I want to talk about this, not just the victory of God, the victory, the end victory. And we'll stay on this for a second. But I also want to point out here the gospel of Armageddon, what we could call the gospel of Armageddon, because even in the midst of victory, even in the midst of all of this upheaval and the cataclysm, God's mountain arising above all other kingdoms, all other nations, all other peoples, still God in his mercy is a redeeming God. Uh, let's look at it. Verse, uh, let's look at verse 3. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What does this tell us? Well, this tells us that even in the midst of the great end time cataclysm, there is, an, there is going to be an inclusion, an inclusion of the nations that will come into the people of God. And so with that, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, where did Paul get Ephesians chapter 2? He got Ephesians chapter 2 from places like Isaiah. Places like Isaiah. He goes to the prophets. He sees what the prophets were prophesying about. He, he, he understands that what Isaiah was foresignifying and what, the, what he was foreseeing was what 
Paul was actually living in at the time that he wrote Ephesians chapter 2 and the time that you and I are living in now, namely the time of Gentile inclusion into the people of God. That's what uh, Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about the nations coming into the church, into the people of God. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. He Himself is our peace. Who's that? Well, that's Christ. He made both groups into one. And He broke down the barrier, the dividing wall. And I've said this before, quoting F.F. Bruce, who says that on the scene of humanity, there has never been a greater conflict, a greater division ethnic racial division in the history of the world than the division between Jew and Gentile. And that that division is overcome, how? By the gospel. So he tears down the dividing wall. He makes Jew and Gentile one. He abolishes in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. He says that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. By it, having put to death the enmity. And if you think, well, we're getting way ahead into our New Testament and into the Gospel, what happened to Isaiah Verse 17, he's quoting Isaiah in order to substantiate what he's talking about. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So what happens in Paul's use of Isaiah 59 right here, what he's saying is that, oh, when Isaiah was talking about people being in exile far away, captivity somewhere in Babylon, and he was saying that he's going to call them to come near, that was prophetic. And even more than that, that was typological of the fact that, that God would call his people from the ends of the earth, from the four corners of the world. He would call his elect from every corner of the earth, and he would draw them near to himself. Uh, it's just really amazing what he does. For through Him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now look at the language here. It's so covenantal. It's so cultic, meaning uh, it's, so, uh, it's in keeping with the religious life of Israel. When he says, then you are no longer strangers and aliens. There you go. There's the same situation that Israelites were in under Isaiah. They're strangers. They're a- aliens. They're, use Peter's words, they're exiles. Right? You're no longer that. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Think about how radical this is. I don't think you can because you're not Jewish in the first century. But to illustrate this, at the, let's, let's get down to you know, rubber meets the road. I'll give you a real practical example of this. You remember what happened in Galatians The Apostle Paul, man, he gets the gospel. The gospel is just freeing and liberating people. Jew, Gentile, come together, one big party. We can eat and dance and we can play music that, you know, Jews are not supposed to play or sing. (laughs) Food where Jews are not supposed to eat. Remember? And, 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 And Paul's just celebrating the freedom. They have a bacon cheeseburger. 
And then Peter's there, and he's like, wow, I never had a cheeseburger with bacon before. <laughs> not supposed to eat bacon, not supposed to eat shrimp or lobster, right? But, okay, I guess we can just go for it. You know what I mean? And it was pure. It was a pure celebration, a pure holy moment. And then there were those, it says, and then there were those men from James that came and approached the party and said, what are you guys doing? Uh, what, 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 you're just abandoning the traditions of the fathers just like that, right? So what they were trying to say is, no, 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 yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He's crucified, risen again. But that doesn't mean we just abandon our history for the past 4,000 years. We still got to keep the, you know, the Jewish heritage going. And what does Paul do? Paul can, uh, first, what does Peter do? Peter recoils and says, oh my, what, did, what have I done? Puts the cheeseburger down with bacon in it. He says, oh no, he draws back. And then Paul says, what are you doing? Right? You just fell out of step with the gospel. You see what happened there? See how radical the change that the New Testament saints underwent this transitional period in the history of the church? It was radical. It was earth shattering. I mean, the whole book of Romans is written to address this issue right here. How do Jews and Romans, Gentiles, how do they go together? So radically different. I mean, they're eating like meat, and, you know, it's, got, it's not well done, you know. They don't honor the festive days of the Jewish calendar. I mean, how are we going to get along? You're going to get along by emphasizing the gospel. That's how you're going to get along. Because all of this is one household, one man. And it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Really amazing. See, what's going on here in the fulfillment of all this is that God is reconciling all things unto himself through Jesus Christ. Therefore, what Isaiah envisions is not just a, a, a temporary remedy, a, a sort of a, a therapeutic approach to sin, but a total removal, a reversal of the curse. Isn't amazing? Through the cross... Jesus achieved this amazing racial reconciliation between the ethnicities. He brought them together in one, as one family. And what is our culture trying to do? Oh, just everything it can. You know, race, race, race. Even the church now, social justice, race, race, race. I don't know, but when God saved me and changed my heart, I didn't have to go, to go to a class on racial reconciliation. I just looked at the person next to me and be like, you're my brother if you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, I don't care what ethnicity you are, you are a poor, naked, wretched, and blind sinner, and you need Jesus Christ. That's where the worldview really comes from. And so what is needed is not conversations about racial reconciliation. What is needed is a removal of the curse. And, and, and that's here. This is actually cast in the language of a recreation. If you, were, if you would, a return to an Edenic state, a paradise reality. Look at verse 4 here in Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah 2, verse 4. Or once again, we will be under God's rule, God's authority. We will occupy our time with tending God's garden. Ready to be a farmer? <laughs> That's our aspiration, brothers and sisters, to, to till the land for God. 
No, we're not actually going to have like tractor trailers in heaven. But what I'm saying is this is the prophetic idiom to show us that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we come back to an idyllic, an idyllic state, a paradisical state, an Edenic state. Isn't that what the whole world wants? Isn't that, I mean, isn't that what everybody is advertising today? It's amazing, right? It's like everything is advertised as a little piece of Eden that you can have with your, oh, here we go, with your organic food or <laughs> with your nice clean technology that's not going to give you cancer. Yeah, right. You see what I'm saying? Like everything is cast in the Of course, man was made to live in paradise. That's why we want it so bad. But we can't have it if we won't have His rule, His word, His ways. Look at verse 4. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Wow. They went from soldiers to farmers. What's really at work here? Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. So in other words, what he's saying is that ever since Cain killed his brother Abel, the nations have been learning war and getting really, really good at it. It blows my mind, I don't know about you, to know that right now on planet Earth, right now, there are thousands of nuclear weapons sitting nice and quietly in silos all across the Earth. (laughs) And that we have the capacity to annihilate the planet many, many, many times over again through our technology. Isn't that comforting? (laughs) No. It shows you that unless God removes the curse, man will not only learn war, but he will engage in war to the point of self-annihilation. That's why we need the gospel. Now, I mentioned Eden. and Oh, now my daughter's probably tuned in. By the way, don't underestimate your children. I mean, Eden's, what, two, two and a half? And Trisha tells me last week, just when you think she's not paying attention to the sermon, okay? Uh, I was preaching. Remember, I got thirsty. I needed a bottle of water. You all remember that, right? Those are the parts of the sermon you do remember. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> so I needed water. And Eden, at that right moment, I said, hey, uh, Pastor Lane, you bring me some water? Eden tunes in razor sharp, laughs at me and goes, ha, Papa needs water. Just when you think she's not paying attention. They're paying attention. Uh, Two chapters in Isaiah I want you to turn to. Chapter 11 and chapter 51. Chapter 11, chapter 51. In other words, what happens here is that when God speaks of this, when, when God is talking about restoring the future to an ideal condition, there usually is on the part of God a divine remembering usually accompanied with a reference to Abraham and past promises of God. Now, in this text, what we see is that the promises of God, the gospel, are all pointing forward to some time of eternal shalom, a realization of the promises of Abraham through the Messiah. And that's what Isaiah engages in here. Isaiah 11, verse 6 says, The wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord 
as the waters cover the sea. You see how wonderful that is? This See, 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 one of the reasons why I wanted to use, uh, go to Isaiah and preach Isaiah, because Isaiah and the prophets uniquely, just read Ezekiel 47, for example, the, the prophets uniquely have this way of just immersing us in this heavenly language, this heavenly ideal, almost utopian state. It's like, I need that. I need to hope for something where I will be able to just enjoy endless, the breath of life. Living water, you know, like we're made to, to crave and to thirst after that. And that's what they're portraying here. And so if you went to Isaiah 51, that's the next text. Because I mentioned Eden, and I mentioned an Edenic state. And uh, I mean this because chapter 2 is actually connected to chapter 11, connected to chapter 51, and other chapters like this. And it all has to do with this Edenic condition. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. This is Isaiah 51, verse 1. Who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you. There's the divine remembrance. He says, when he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and I multiplied him. That's the gospel, by the way. And it says, indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste Places Now, that language there of a waste place, that's like the tohu bavohu of Genesis, where it says the earth was formless and void. He's picking up on that creation language, and he's using it theologically, eschatologically, of the future and what God will do in a recreation of everything. He says, therefore, her wilderness will be made like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanks giving and a sound of melody isn't that wonderful that's heaven and so what isaiah is forecasting here is that there is coming a time O israel and this is what i thought was so practical about what isaiah is doing here the people of god are in a bad time bad time uh really bad we have trials you have trials we see trials But I'm talking about Israel is about to embark on a level, a degree of trial that would take your breath away. Just read Deuteronomy 28. It's hard to read. The curses that Israel will undergo by virtue of their faithlessness and their covenant breaking all the way to the point where they will have to cannibalize their own children to survive. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about national desolation. And so out of the tumultuous darkness, the weariness of that kind of a, of a, of a, of a you know, of a, just a trial, of a, you know, just a, a humanitarian crisis that arises even in the nation, out of that comes a prophecy where Isaiah is prophesying about a great summit that arises out of the ashes of the wasteland of the people of God's tribulation. And the, the, the summit of that is God and His kingdom and His Messiah and the seed. And we're going to go back to Eden and all oh, we'll be able to partake of the river of life and we're going to have access to the gardens. Can, can, can you see how... You'll want a message like that when you're in that depth of despair, when you're in that level, that degree of pain and agony and misery where, as the prophets say, the whole land is languishing under sin 
And here comes this prophecy speaking of a restored Eden, speaking of a time of eternal shalom with God, peace, peace with God. Eschatology is meant to be practical. I know it's controversial, but it's also meant to be practical. And the practicality is in verse 5. You see it? Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's like you get this prophetic description, right? You get this remarkable graphic portrayal of a certain future, a triumphant future. And just as we're getting to the end of that, comes in a very practical exhortation towards daily living. Come, let us walk. So that's your life. That's your conduct. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the way it's going to happen. In other words, uh, and I want to emphasize two things. I want to emphasize house of Jacob and let, and the word us. Why? Because think of what was just said, verse three. Who will be, who will be coming to the law of the Lord? Who will be coming to the word of the Lord? Who will be coming to his ways? Who will want to be taught by God? It is the nations. It is the Gentiles. And so think of the logic of the prophet. If the Gentiles are going to seek the law of the Lord, what are we doing? It's our law. It's just like witnessing to a Jewish person. Hello, what are you doing? It's your law. It's your Messiah. It's your covenants. These are your promises. To you belong the patriarchs. To you belong the the covenants, the promises. What are you doing? I was watching a video the other night of two young guys, one of them I know, preaching in Jerusalem. Have you seen these guys? They're out there street preaching in the city of Jerusalem. Wow. Wow. Not safe. <laughs> and, and, and they're talking about, and, and they're so, I, I thought they so humble, meek, and clothed with humility, but they're out there preaching and saying, come to Jesus, the Messiah. And the Jewish people are just walking by, spitting on them, kicking them, uh, you know, uh, trying to burn cigarettes on them. I mean, unbelievable hostility towards anything that has to do with Jesus, the Messiah. And it just reminds us, right? It's like exactly what Paul is saying is that, they have, a knowledge, they have a zeal for God, but without knowledge. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, they do, but you know what I mean? They're, they're deceived. And, uh, and it's like, this is your Messiah. These are your promises. Take advantage. And so Paul even says, make the Jews jealous for their own Messiah. That's the way that we should witness to the Jews. And I've done that on a couple of occasions where I had a Jewish person patient enough to let me preach to them just long enough (laughs) before they storm away to tell them, look, I'm preaching about your faith. This is your Messiah. These are your oracles. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 3? The oracles of God belong to you. And that's what Isaiah is telling the people. Let us, house of Jacob, if the nations are going to inherit Zion, what are we doing? Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, granted, when it says the light of the Lord, there's two ways to look at this. Um, it, can have the, the, it can have the idea of God's moral purity, uh, His holiness, His sanctification, and it does have that. And so that's what John is talking about in 1 John chapter 3, when he talks about everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Uh, 1 John chapter uh, 1 
uh, where he says in verse 10, walk in the light as he is in the light. All those, those are really emphasizing the moral holiness of God, the purity of God. But here in, uh, in Isaiah, it's the light of God is more revelatory. Uh, it, it's dealing with the instruction of God, the law of God, the, the, the word of God. That's the light. That's the light that they need to come to. They need to come back to the word of God in order for them to, uh, um, to see light. In his light, we see light. And there's a great warning accompanied with this. If you will not come to the light of the Lord, look at verse 6. You, okay, so real quick. Five, verse 5, and then verse 6 symbolizes a radical transition in the prophecy. You see it? Right? So we go from sort of the exhortation towards the people, and then all of a sudden uh, the prophet addresses God directly. You see this? For you have abandoned your people. Wow. And it says, the house of Jacob, because, this is why he abandons them, because they are filled with influences from the east. Wow. And, and, this, and the second phrase is explanatory. Because they are filled, uh, it says, because they, and they are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. What is that language all about? Well, influences from the east, it's just pagan. It's pagan religion. And so, like we mentioned last week, Israel has become syncretic. It's trying to synthesize true religion with false religion and get away with it. And God says, no way. I want purity. And back then, in, at the Old Testament, Old Covenant level, the, the, the influence, the children of foreigners... You see, okay, so like in our context today, when you talk like that, you immediately sound like you're racist. So what are we supposed to be? Like... <laughs> You know what I mean? What what was God a racist back then? No, you misunderstand that the children of Israel were called to be distinct. They're called to be separate. They're called to be called out as a type of the future people of God, AI, you and I. But you and I no longer operate along ethnic, ethnic or racial lines. We operate on spiritual lines. So what was ethnic and racial for them and geographic for them is now spiritual for us, that's a really oversimplified way of putting that. But that's what it is. It's just to help you interpret the book so that when you get here, you don't sit here and go, well, what's wrong with foreigners? It's like, no, Isaiah was not watching CNN, okay? He didn't care. By the way, I listened to a message about the prophets, and this scholar was talking about, you know, the prophets were weird. though no, they were you would not probably want to be associated with a prophet. Prophets did not care what people thought about them. Uh, Evangelical pastors today care. Seriously, we care about what people think. You know, we dress nice for church, and, you know, we want to have a nice website, and, you know, all this stuff. Not Isaiah. Isaiah could care less. Uh, Matter of fact, God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah, get ready. I'm calling you. I'm appointing you a prophet to the nations. Guess what? Everyone will hate you. The people, the priests, the politicians, the kings, everyone. They will all hate you. Still want to be in ministry? (laughs) And Isaiah, 
or Jeremiah does, just like Isaiah says, here am I, O Lord, send me. So Isaiah is not trying to win a popularity contest. He's not trying to get likes on Facebook. He is not trying to be accepted by the culture. He is not trying to be cool, hip, and clean, whatever. He's not into that. Isaiah is bothered. Isaiah has, like, like Daniel, he is physically ill with prophecy. Don't you understand? God was revealing things to Isaiah such that it literally, he, he, he was literally probably physically affected by it. Uh, Isaiah, uh, Daniel says he was weary from the prophecy. It's because the divine revelation, the intrusion of the supernatural revelation of God upon a human being to be the oracle to prophesy about such great things. It, kind of, it came with a great cost. And so uh, the prophets were an offering. They were an offering, just laid on the altar. How do we end this? I end this by saying that Isaiah's word here, not only does it emphasize Zion's exclusivity. In other words, you want to know God, you must come to Zion. You want to know God, you cannot operate on the wisdom of the world. So last place. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 because this just came jumping out at me how that what Isaiah is saying here, even in light of what's going on in Israel at the time and Judah at the time, is totally, absolutely countercultural. It is diametrically opposed to the wisdom of this age, and that does not get minimized in the church through the gospel. If anything, it is intensified. It is crystallized in Jesus Christ. You know what makes us countercultural? Jesus Christ. That's why we can't make him culture friendly. Because he's not. Because Jesus Christ is not friendly to this culture. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ is not friendly to this culture that you and I live in right now. Not friendly to it at all. He is totally opposed to it, totally foreign to it. He comes and he speaks to the world the truth. And what does he say? The world hates me because I tell it that it is evil. Jesus Christ is not trying. He is the ultimate prophet. And as the ultimate prophet, his wisdom is diametrically opposed to the wisdom of this age, brothers and sisters. Never mistake that. Do not get... This is for me. This is for you, but... Do not get lulled to sleep by evangelical culture. Don't try to nestle up to the world because you see certain things going on in evangelicalism that makes it look like, oh, we're being accepted by the world. We're suddenly likable by the politicians or by the media or by the entertainment industry. I don't think that's the goal. The goal is not to be likable to the world. The goal is to be distinct, different, altogether other than what the world is. Don't you see? I love my, uh, uh, one of the people that preaches really hard was uh, uh, Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He actually did a news interview where the, the interviewer was trying to say, well, wh- how do you get people to like Christianity? How, how do you appeal to them? And Lloyd-Jones, that, that, that staunch Puritan at a time, just, you know, he's just like, what, like, what are you talking about? I'm not here to have people like the Christian message. You know, the Christian message is the truth. And it's in opposition to the world, darkness and light. Are we losing that? I just really, 
Let's write it down, talk about it over dinner or something. Are we losing that edge? We are confounding the light with the darkness. This is a, this is a, good, this is a good point of introspection here for us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just to remind us of two things that I think are coming straight out of Isaiah with this countercultural Zion only, not the influence of the world type of message. And that is this. 1 Corinthians 1.20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? That's the key word, this age. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You cannot understand how powerful that is, what Paul just said, because of where he said it. He says this in Corinth. What was Corinth? Corinth was the metropolis of cultural setting, trend setting, philosophies, fashions, and ideals that permeated the Roman Empire. And what Paul is saying is in the very belly of the beast, the world system, he says, "Uh uh-uh, God has made the wisdom of this age, of this world, foolish. And he says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its own wisdom, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. That's what would make the world wise. But because the world does not know God, it remains foolish under, because of that. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now go to chapter 2, verse 6 and 8, because this now brings us into the equation. Okay, so God has set the wisdom of the world aside. He's made it foolish. He has judged it in a sense. And what about us? Well, look at chapter 2, verse 6. We speak wisdom among those who are mature. Uh, Those who are mature, by the way, are those who are spiritually so. It's not like some of you are mature, some of us are more immature. He's talking about you're spiritually mature through Christ. You've grown up spiritually. He says, however, this wisdom is not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. Are there some powerful rulers of this age? Oh yeah, you better believe it. There are powerful rulers in this age that we live in right now. Matter of fact, there's a biblical theology that I want to do. Some of you all will like this. Some of you, well, whatever, but some of you will like this. There's a, there's a powerful biblical theology. I haven't done the work, but I'm convinced it's there. You know what it is? It goes back to, it goes, goes back to, I'll try to do this quickly, but it goes back to Genesis chapter 5. The sons of God that went into the daughters of men, and then the Nephilim were born, right? There were giants in the land, right? That super controversial uh, 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 passage there. Some people think it's angels literally going in and cohabiting with women and producing a demonic seed. Some people think, well, it's demon possession, and that's how they did it, right? And that's just an accenting the depravity of the world, and then God floods the world because it got so depraved. Okay, that's possible, but I want to zero in on the fact that it says that there were mighty men in the world at that time. That badge then is picked up, I believe, is picked up in Genesis chapter 10 of one mighty man, a hunter, a mighty hunter by the name of Nimrod. You know what Nimrod does? He has a city. He runs a city called Shinar. You know what they do in Shinar? They build a tower called Babel. They try to reach heaven through the tower. Okay? And then the mighty men language is used throughout the Old Testament to speak 
about people who have the power to influence the course of human history. And that language is used in the book of Revelation of the rulers, the kings of the earth, who literally have global dominance over the people. Maybe we could talk after, man, but I think it's fascinating. And just to show us that the rulers of the, those rulers, those global influencers, do not know God because they reject His wisdom, they reject the cross. And guess what, brothers and sisters? That wisdom and those rulers are literally passing away. They fail to see that by virtue of their hostility to God, they will fade away. They will expire with their wisdom and with their technology. I'm sorry, but I think the Elon Musks of the world and the Jeff Bezos of the world who want to zip around like the Jeffersons in outer space, it, it, it is a poisonous dream. It is a vain glory. It is utter insanity. Uh, okay, so prove me wrong, okay? Maybe in a couple hundred years. But I think it's wrong. And you say, well, what's wrong with it? You want to sp- building a spaceship? Is that evil? No, not necessarily. Only to understand the deeper worldview that these men operate off of that I've heard that they're actually trying to seek immortality through technology. That could be evil. If you don't seek immortality through Jesus Christ, it shows that the wisdom of the world is totally fallen, totally opposite, and totally diametrically opposed to God. And so what is Isaiah saying? Zion is coming. The mountain of God is coming. The great cataclysm, the future end. Okay, the end of the world is coming. And then he's saying, so are you living by God's light. You know, I close my notes, but... I, I remember I had, okay, I remember, I remember what's in there. I remember that I had an exhortation to you. And my exhortation for you, brothers and sisters, was this. Let's not assume, I don't assume even as a pastor, that you are living according to God's word all the time. That you are not, like Israel, being influenced by the East that you are not being influenced by the soothsayers of our world, of our culture. You know, thankfully we're not here, but I mean, think of the church, the shack, Jesus calling. You know, Rick Warren's doing diet plans out of the book of Daniel. Are you kidding me? That's what the Bible is for, to do diet plans out of the book of Daniel, and that guy gets invited to come in. Anyways. The revelation of God is meant to be a guide for you on your way to heaven. That's what it's for. It's meant to lead you, to give you wisdom that is not of this age, that is not of this world. Don't you see? You can accumulate all of the advice and all the programs and all the philosophies and everything that the world is telling you to do. And what do you get at the end of it? Nothing. A heap of ashes. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Endures forever. And Isaiah's call to the people is, listen, we'll see this next week, Lord willing, don't trust in man. Stop it. Stop trusting in man as if man has the answers. No, God has the answers. You know, the the world exploits our frustrations. The world exploits our weaknesses. The world exploits our emotional needs and our psychological needs. It exploits our hurts, our pains. It exploits that and tries to give us the answers for those things. There's a gospel in the book of Ecclesiastes that goes something like this. 
The world is utterly futile. You ever seen this? Vanity, 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 right? If there's one thing you know about the book of Ecclesiastes is that it has the word vanity in it. (laughs) Oh, and time for everything. But I'm convinced that the book of Ecclesiastes was written in order to tell us that we do not know how to complain. I think it's written to tell us you think you've had enough in this world? You think you've gone through something in this world? You think the world is hopeless? You think you're out of hope? You think you've run out? You don't know how to complain. Let me show you how to be really frustrated in this world. And then he goes through it all. Your finances, your relationships, your money, your work, your employment, your health, your looks, everything. He runs one after another and says, everything is vain. Don't you understand? God understands the vanity and the hopelessness of this world, this age, more than you do. And there, and then at the end, what's the, what's the refrain? Fear God and keep his commandments. When you really come to that point, man, where you see the world is empty, that's when you're supposed to say, fear God and keep his commandments. Amen? Let's pray. Father... In one sense, a sermon like this is effortless for every person here if it's our life. If we believe that the world is empty, number one. If we believe that we were created for glory and not for the the cisterns of this world that have no water, And we were, and we are. We're so grateful, Lord, for the happy future of Zion. We're so thankful, God, that we are in that number. It's that simple. And yet you call us, Lord, to a certain standard of living. You call us to a certain standard that we all fall short. We know we don't measure up, but there's one thing, as Paul says, there's one thing that I do, forget what lies behind me and press on to what lies ahead to the upward call in Jesus Christ. I'm so grateful for church, Lord, just on a personal level, just being able to come here and get refocused on heaven and eternity and God, things that dwindle throughout the week if we're not careful. And so, Father, motivate us, Lord. Stimulate us to love and to good works for your glory and for your kingdom and for the good of your people. Help us, God. Protect us from the influences of the East, from the worldly wisdom that is crashing, cascading down all around us. And yet, as, as, as broken as, as the world is, if we're honest, We're too quick to listen to its wisdom. And so forgive us, God, and give us renewed passion and renewed resolve to determine to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified today. In Jesus' name, amen.